the Bible is uh, a story. It's a narrative, right? It's a story of God's great plan of redemption. And all of history, that word itself, history, comes from his story, as you may know, is the story of God's providential care. So even what uh, history outside of Scripture is part of God's history. It is all God's history, his story. And our life is like a story, a narrative, within that history that unfolds over time, right? There are people and places in our lives, events, situations, circumstances that occur. Uh, and our story is really just an outworking in our lives of the sovereign God's purposes for us. Now, imagine for a moment you were asked to tell your story. Not necessarily your every detail life story, but the essence of it, the pivotal and important moments in your story, in your life. Now imagine your story without friendship. You had to leave all that out. What would be left? It would be incomplete, I trust. Your story would be incomplete at best and probably empty at worst. There is a sweet common grace friendship that we enjoy work or hobbies together with others. Further, there are the pivotal points and important moments in our lives that involve friendship, especially important spiritual friendships. Many Christians are evangelized and discipled by friends. Even those who are from strong Christian families usually experience a measure of salvific grace through friendship. Therefore, it is no surprise that the Scriptures place a high value on friendship. And this is especially the case with the book of Proverbs. Now, the church has labeled the Proverbs sermon series, Navigate, and this book of the Bible reveals for us how crucial, how crucial friendship is and instructs us on how to seek it, maintain it, and value friends. Proverbs, if you will, helps us navigate friendship, and friends help us navigate life. Now, there are 14 verses in the English Standard Version that the word, the word friend, friends, or friendship occur. And so we're going to stick to those this morning. Uh, ten of these 14 verses use cognates of root words, two root words, uh, Hebrew words, reyah or ahab. And the first, reyah, is a Hebrew word for friend or companion or neighbor. Ahab is a Hebrew word for love, actually. And these two words, Hebrew words, occur together uh, in a verse that we all know from Leviticus 19.18, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The other four verses, so those are ten of these verses, the other four use three other Hebrew words that the context provides the meaning of friend. And so these 14 verses, which we're going to look at today, provide us with the proverbial wisdom regarding friendship. Six subgroups uh, seem, at least to me, to be evident. And so I want to read these now, these 14 verses, by subgroup. And then we're going to go back through and look at each of these. And if you think, oh my goodness, we have six subgroups of 14 scriptures to look at. We're going to be here a long time. Uh, that's really not the case. So the first uh, of these six groups, which you'll see, the first four are going to be quite brief. Uh, the final two, which I want to spend the bulk of the time on, are more involved and uh, should probably give us a more takeaway. So, first, uh, Proverbs 14.20, excuse me, the first, I want to say that the first group is the 
the, the first subgroup, is this reality that those with wealth are more popular than those without it. Newsflash, right? So, Proverbs 14.20, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. 19.6, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. 19.7, all a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but, he, but does not have them. So that's one group. Uh, the second group, or type, type of friend to avoid. We are warned to avoid this type of friend. There's one verse here. 22.24 tells us, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Third group is, teaches us how to gain friendship. 16.28, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates, excuse me, I just read the wrong one, how to gain friendship. I told you the wrong one to put up there, didn't I? Um, the third group is how to gain friendship. 22.11, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. And now, uh, 1628 fits with this, how to ruin friendship, which seems a little more, you might have been wondering what was going on there. How to gain a friendship and talking about a dishonest man. Not good. So how to ruin friendship. There are two verses in Proverbs here about this, and they are very much parallels, you'll see. 1628, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. And then 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And another subgroup teaches us of the value friends bring to one's material life. 17.17 tells us, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 18.24 tells us, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And 27.10 says, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. And finally, the sixth and final subgroup, as I have organized this anyway, uh, teaches the value friends bring to one's spiritual life. 7.4 says, Say to wisdom you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend. And then a very familiar verse from 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And then 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Now, as I said, we'll look, consider each of these 
groups in turn. And what I like to do is, as we go through each one, look at the lives of some biblical characters where the truths of these Proverbs are manifested, for better or for worse, uh, in their lives. Most, as I said, will go quickly, uh, but the final two we will take most of our time. And it's going to be a little difficult. The nature of a lot of these uh, topical Proverbs sermons is it's difficult to follow along very well. In your scripture, you're welcome to do that, and I will try to read the verses but they should be on the screen as well if that's more comfortable for you. So, again, the first group is that the reality teaches us the reality that those with wealth are more popular than those without it. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. And then, and that's 1420, and then in chapter 19, we have 4, 6, and 7. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to the man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. Now, it's important to note that these Proverbs are descriptive, not prescriptive. We are not hereby taught to clamor for friends among the rich and ignore and despise poor relatives. That would be a terrible interpretation of these scriptures. We need to remind, be reminded, and this was dealt with in previous weeks and sermons, but that in Proverbs, wealth can be both a blessing and a curse. Right? Proverbs commends a good work ethic that often results in wealth, while recognizing that poverty often comes from irresponsibility. That truth is there. For example, 21.5, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. However, Proverbs also tells us that abundance is no assurance of goodness. Uh, 17.1 says, A better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. The point of this group of Proverbs on wealth, poverty, and friendship is that people usually seek friendship that benefits themselves. It's the what's-in-it-for-me attitude. And while this is not commendable, it is reality, and we ignore it at our own peril. If we are too needy, even friends may grow weary of us. If we are too generous, we may be cultivating the wrong kind of friends. And we need to be aware of seeking friendship with others for the right reasons, not merely for our own benefit and gain, especially material gain. But there can be other types of gain. I will use myself as a negative example on this. Uh, many years ago now, we were able to start uh, a family ministry, an assisted living facility, and we get to know people there and their families. And uh, oh, maybe a couple, three years in, I was given some time to reflect upon our ministry, and I recognized something very ugly about myself, and that was that the people who were the easiest to minister to, who were the most thankful the most appreciative, the most complimentary, tended to get the bulk of my time and attention and love in return. Calls into question, what was the point of the ministry, right? Was it merely to uh, get back, uh, get something out of it? Or was it to be able to love those who need the love the most, right? 
And we all can easily fall into uh, such traps of seeking friendships that merely will benefit ourselves. We also need to seek friendships among those who have nothing in return to give us. And the Lord Jesus reminds us to seek out those kinds of friendships, right? Uh, to bless those who are not able to bless in return. Right. So again, to reiterate the proverbial point, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. A couple of quick biblical examples. Solomon's wealth and success brought him fame and popularity. Think of the Queen of Sheba coming uh, to visit him. But his many foreign alliances provided him with wives that were his undoing. Ultimately, his wealth and the connections it brought him did not prove a blessing to him. And the example of a poor man deserted by his friend, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but when King David was at his lowest ebb during his son Absalom's rebellion, he was deserted by his most trusted advisor, Ahaphamel. So it goes, right? When we are up, people want to be with us. When we are down, people will desert us. All right, the second subgroup here is a type of friend to avoid. And this is Proverbs again, 22, 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Angry men, and we could say people, seems that men generally uh, have more problem with anger than women, but angry men, angry people are rash men who make poor decisions that bring down others. Is it any wonder proverbial wisdom warns us against allying ourselves with such a person? Biblical example would be King Saul. Now, he had a real anger problem, uh, which was indicative, actually, of just general rashness in his life. Recall in 1 Samuel 13, when he was impatient for Samuel to arrive and offer sacrifice at Gilgal. So he went ahead and did it himself, even though it was not the place of the king to offer sacrifice, but of the priests. He was rebuked and condemned for that. Later, he made a rash oath, forbidding his soldiers to eat all day while engaging in warfare with the Philistines. Didn't make sense to tell hard-working soldiers not to eat all day. That nearly ended in his son's death. This is in 1 Samuel 14. Given this pattern of rashness, it should be no surprise then that when David acquired a greater reputation than Saul for being a warrior, Saul's anger was flashed at David and he attempted to kill his own son-in-law. No one, ultimately, who went with Saul prospered. The third group is how to gain friendship. One verse here, 22.11. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Now who cannot help but think of the prophet Daniel when reading this proverb, right? I'm sure I'm not the only one. For the sake of a pure conscience, Daniel would not defile himself with the king's food, and he handled the situation graciously with the king's servants. This is described in Daniel chapter 1. I'm not going to read any of it. It's familiar to both of us, most of us probably. If it's not, I encourage you to read it. Uh, and then in 
Daniel 2, when he had an audience with King Nebuchadnezzar himself, reciting the king's dream and providing the prophetic interpretation of it, he was likewise gracious in his speech. Now we may not have audience with kings or heads of state, though we might, but even if we are not, we are taught here how to gain favor with those in authority, in general, purity of heart and gracious speech. Obeying God while showing deference to others whenever possible is God's way. And it is a way, frankly, that Christians need to remember in the social, cultural, and political environment in which we live. Obeying God, always, but doing so as much as possible, showing deference to others. And this applies to all situations, not just those with governance and so in authority. Many in our sphere of influence can become friends if we practice what this proverb teaches, keeping purity of heart and practicing graciousness with our speech. Well, to turn a little negative before we get to the positive of the final two groups, uh, the fourth subgroup has two proverbs on how to ruin a friendship. Uh, and, you know, the, the scripture is so real, it doesn't just tell us what to do, it tells us what to avoid, doesn't it? And that is a blessing. We need both. 1628, we read, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisper separates close friends. And then in 17.9, a very similar verse. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Now, a dishonest man spreading strife, I cannot help but think of Genesis 3.1, right? Uh, the serpent questioned Eve if Eve had really understood what God had said, trying to stir it up. A case of the dishonest spreading strife, and aren't we all the worse for it? Gossip, in general, of course, is roundly condemned in the Bible. The forbidding of bearing false witness is in the Ten Commandments, as we know. The prophet Jeremiah lamented of whispering by his supposed friends who were eager for his downfall. And the apostle John had trouble with a man named Diotrephes, who was, and I quote, talking wicked nonsense against us. Given gossip's destructive nature, it is little wonder that Christ commands going directly to one who sins against us in hope of resolution in Matthew 18, 15 through 18. All right. So hopefully that didn't take too long, the first four. We have two final subgroups, and we will spend more time on these. These are, the first of these is, again, the value friends bring to one's material life. 1717, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. In 1824, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And then 2710, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your neighbor's house on the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Real friends are there when the going gets tough. We spoke earlier of a man whom David trusted but who was disloyal 
when he saw the wind blow the other way. Fortunately, David, who will be our example here in this section, had two true friends, both of whom provide wonderful examples of how friendship can bless one in difficult circumstances. And that friendship can run thicker than blood relations. Now one, of course, everybody is already thinking of, and that is Jonathan. He was the eldest son of King Saul. He was a courageous soldier, and of course he was presumed to be the heir to the throne. He had far more reason to be jealous of David than did his father Saul. Yet he proved a true friend, one who loves at all times and sticks closer than a brother, as our Proverbs say. Jonathan loved David, we are told repeatedly, as his own soul. Here was an example of loving your neighbor as yourself. We see this in how Jonathan risked his life for David, protecting him from the murderous rage of Saul and thereby nearly being victimized by it himself. That's in 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan later went to David when he was being hunted by Saul, that is, when David was being hunted by Saul, of course, at Horish in 1 Samuel 23. And the scripture there says that Jonathan strengthened his hand, that's David's hand, in God. He reassured David that Saul would not find him and take his life, telling him, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Imagine the king's eldest son was satisfied with being next to David, the king, as his right-hand man, as we would say. This was a friendship that was founded in the Lord, and they made a covenant with each other before Yahweh. See, a friend loves at all times, seeking what is best for their friend. David had another, less talked about friend, Hushai. He is described in Scripture as Hushai, the archite, David's friend. And this word friend here is a cognate of uh, Reah, which we have already seen in many of the Proverbs I mentioned, meaning friend, companion, neighbor. It's in 2 Samuel 16, 16. And this friend, too, proved that friendship can trump family relations. When David's son Absalom rebelled and seized the throne, Hushai remained in Jerusalem and feigned loyalty to the new self-proclaimed king Absalom. But he remained in his heart true to David his friend and risked his life as a spy. He purposely provided counsel to Absalom that was dubious for him, but helpful to David's cause as he fled the capital to safety across the Jordan River. Earlier, I had asked if we could imagine our story without friends, telling our story without friends. Can you imagine David's story without his friends Jonathan and Hushai? But as wonderful as physical help from friends is, how much more is the value friends bring to one's spiritual life? And this is the sixth and final subgroup of Proverbs. There are three here. Again, verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. And then 27.6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And then 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel.
better than any material benefit a friend can, might bring is the spiritual blessings which a Christian friend can bring to a friendship. Now, Proverbs 7.4 evokes the proverbial theme of personifying wisdom, right? We've seen this in past sermons. Godly wisdom is like an intimate friend. One cannot help but again think of Jonathan, whose soul, the Bible says, was knit to the soul of David in 1 Samuel 18.1. And I just want to make a comment about that passage and the passage in 2 Samuel 1.26 where David eulogized Jonathan in part with these words, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. There are some who try to turn Jonathan, David and Jonathan into romantic and sexual partners. This is, is preposterous as it is blasphemous. There is more to love than romance and sex, despite what you might learn from modern Western culture, especially in the mass media. David and Jonathan were war buddies. That itself is an incredible bond of love. On top of that, God supplied them with a special brother-like bond of love. In their culture, the love among soldiers and siblings was often valued above married love. And that's all these passages are saying. Well, that's enough about that. Uh, but I want to spend time on the passages in Proverbs 27 in particular. Again, very familiar, but faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. We see here, woe to the person who is not accountable to anyone else. The late R.C. Sproul, a wonderful theologian that he was, wrote about this in his book Chosen by God, about how history's monsters, think Hitler and Stalin and their ilk, reached a pinnacle of power without accountability and therefore no check on the evil within them. But it happens on a smaller scale with many others. It can even be an issue in churches, sadly. More than one celebrity pastor has been undone by becoming too big and important to receive negative feedback from even the other leaders and elders in his church. And it happens to non-celebrity pastors who get surrounded by yes-men, you just don't hear about it, right? It's not in the media because they're not celebrities. We all need friends who we trust to provide wise counsel and who trust us enough to question us at times and be real with us and tell us if we're sinning. Who will be our biblical example in this of such a friend? Ultimately, Jesus Christ embodies friendship like no one else. And he uses the term himself. In John 15, verses 13 through 15, we read, and these are Jesus' own words. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, before we go any further, there is an important caveat to keep in mind when we talk about Jesus as our friend. 
Uh, Jesus does call us friends, those who obey and follow him, his friends, certainly. But he's still Lord. The friendship of Christ is not exactly this equal kind of partnership like we might think of we would have with our human friends, right? It might be, just thinking about this, maybe like a teenager who could say that mom or dad is my best friend. That's awesome. But mom or dad is still in charge, right? It's not a relationship of equals, even though there is great friendship. Now, God's story of redemption, of history, is the story of redemptive friendship, we might say. God befriends us in Christ loving us at all times and giving us earnest counsel. This idea of Christ as our friend, Jesus as our friend, is explored in Christian hymnody quite frequently. We are probably familiar with a lot of these hymns. Uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. I found a friend in Jesus. And another hymn, Be Still My Soul, which is not on the theme of friendship, but has my personal favorite little line in there. At the end of the first stanza, we, near the end of the first stanza, we, we sing, your best, your heavenly friend, in reference to Christ. Again, this is based on scripture, this idea that Jesus is our friend. God can be our friend. This is most uh, pronounced, as I read in John's gospel in chapter 15, but the theme is elsewhere. We are told in Exodus that Yahweh spoke to Moses face to face as a friend. Uh, Abraham is called a friend of God. As long as we keep in mind that God is still God and still in authority over us, it is uh, very sweet and pleasing to think of God in Christ being our friend. Now, how is Jesus our friend? It's easy to say that, but what does that mean? Well, he tells us right up front the basis of that friendship the basis of how he is our friend. In John 15, 13, he says he lays down his life for us. There's no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends, and I call you friends if you obey me. The cross, in this friendship, in this laying down of Jesus' life, are wounds, the faithful wounds of a friend. See, the cross of Christ is an open rebuke of human wisdom and strength, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1. The cross of Christ, the suffering and death of Christ, and that God would send him to the cross is the in-your-face to every single human being that you are not wise enough, you are not strong enough, you and you are not good enough to save yourself. That can cut. It should cut. In fact, that language is described. If you recall Peter in, in Acts chapter 2, in his sermon there in Jerusalem, when he preaches the gospel, and we are told that many of the Jewish leaders were cut to the heart. The message of the gospel is a wound. It is a wound to the heart. It is a wound to the spiritual pride that exists within all of us. But recall that the word Friend, sometimes in Proverbs, is a word for love. I mentioned that toward the beginning. 27.6 is actually one of them. Further, the word enemy here in 27.6 is a word for hate. So a more literal rendering of Proverbs 27.6 could be this. 
Faithful are the wounds of one who loves. Profuse are the kisses of one who hates. Our best, our heavenly friend who loves us, faithfully rebukes us with the spiritual wounds by bearing in his own body the physical wounds unto death which were deservedly ours. This is the good news of the gospel. It's that for our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. See, Christ endured not only the physical torture of crucifixion, but the spiritual void of being forsaken by God. As we know in Matthew 27, 46, when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, as it were, this is um, picture language, but God, as it were, turned his back on Christ as the sin bearer. Only the fatal wounds of the crucified Christ are sufficient to deliver us from damnation. He laid down his life for his friends. How do we know if we are his friend? We see his friendship, his willingness to lay down his life, an innocent life and sacrifice. How do we know if we are his friend? Do we accept his friendship? Well, he tells us in verse 14 of John chapter 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. See, the sacrifice of Christ is applied to our lives as we receive the rebuke that is the cross that I spoke of. That wound to our spiritual pride that we are not wise enough, we are not strong enough, we are not good enough to save ourselves. We never can be or will be. When that is recognized... And when the, we allow the cross and the, the wounds of the physical wounds of Christ to speak to us, and we recognize His sacrifice, the necessity of it, and our own worthlessness, the sacrifice of Christ is applied to our lives as we repent of our own dead works and believe on Christ. As we receive the rebuke that is the cross. Do we recognize the necessity of those wounds to save us from sin and death and hell? It's something that we all have to ask ourselves. If you aren't a Christian and you're here today, make your story God's story. Receive the friendship of Christ. Repent and believe the good news of a heavenly friend who sticks closer than a brother and will love you at all times. How can you know that he would love you at all times? There's no greater love than this, is there? That he lay down his life. He already has done that. Surely, he will love us at all times. Now, a friend, he is a friend who lived the perfect life that you could not live and then died in your place, receiving in his person the just wrath of God on your behalf. You will never find a greater friend but you must receive him by faith. You must repent and believe that his life is your life and that his death be your death. And for those of us who do know the Lord, imagine again your life story, as I said before, but now imagine it without your best, your heavenly friend. If you're a Christian, you cannot. There would be this great big hole in the center of your life 
It's not merely incomplete, but it's empty. Furthermore, if you are a Christian who has received the friendship of Christ, then we are bid to freely, that we have received, freely give. And to remember that it is more blessed to give than to receive. May we be conduits of the love of Christ our Lord through which he blesses others. As it was said at the beginning, many Christians are evangelized and discipled by friends. Even those from Christian families often find that the pivotal point of their lives were friendships. If you are a Christian, be that friend to somebody else. You have received freely. You have received the friendship of Christ. You have received the friendship of others. Now go and give that friendship freely. See, the temptation is always to be takers and not givers, right? We are all tempted the same way. I mentioned earlier recognizing that ugliness in myself many years ago and needing to repent of it. But just as we save our lives by giving them, so we gain a friend by being a friend. There's a basic Christian principle involved. It's as we give ourselves that we gain. So just as your story would be incomplete or empty without friends, so it is for others. So be that friend for someone else. Be that friend for others. Especially telling them of your best, your heavenly friend, your friend Jesus Christ. And then when others tell their story, maybe someday you will be a part of it. And you will both share the same hope and love that is found only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, our best, our heavenly friend. Let's pray. Lord, oh, how grateful we are to you. We would not even know what friendship is, Lord, but that you have loved us. You have shown us. You have taught us. And I pray, Lord, that you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, would strengthen your people, would embolden us, Lord, to freely give what we have received, that we would freely give the friendship of Christ that we have received. Lord, do this for your sake, for your glory, that Christ might be glorified in all things. Amen. <laughs>